Section 15 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Why, sir, said he, by vending such an insinuation, you put discredit on the great atonement in which you trust. Is there not enough of merit in the blood of Jesus to save thousands of worlds, if it was for these worlds that he died? Now, when you know, as you do, and as every one of the elect may know of himself, that this Savior died for you, namely and particularly, dare you say that there is not enough of merit in his great atonement to annihilate all your sins? Let them be as heinous and atrocious as they may. And moreover, do you not acknowledge that God hath preordained and decreed whatsoever comes to pass? Then how is it that you should deem it in your power to eschew one action of your life, whether good or evil? Depend on it. The advice of the great preacher is genuine. What thine hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. For none of us knows what a day may bring forth. That is, none of us knows what is preordained, but whatever it is preordained we must do, and none of these things will be laid to our charge. I could hardly believe that these sayings were genuine or orthodox. But I soon felt that, instead of being a humble disciple of mine, this new acquaintance was to be my guide and director and all under the humble guise of one stooping at my feet to learn the right. He said that he saw I was ordained to perform some great action for the cause of Jesus and his church, and he earnestly coveted being a partaker with me. But he besought of me never to think it possible for me to fall from the truth, or the favor of him who had chosen me else that misbelief would balk every good work to which I set my face. There was something so flattering in all this that I could not resist it. Still, when he took leave of me, I felt it as a great relief, and yet, before the morrow, I wearied and was impatient to see him again. We carried on our fellowship from day to day, and all the while I knew not who he was. And still my mother and reverend father kept insisting that I was an altered youth, changed in my appearance, my manners, and my whole conduct. Yet something always prevented me from telling them more about my new acquaintance than I had done on the first day we met. I rejoiced in him, was proud of him, and soon could not live without him. Yet, though resolved every day to disclose the whole story of my connection with him, 
I had it not in my power. Something always prevented me, till at length I thought no more of it, but resolved to enjoy his fascinating company in private, and by all means to keep my own with him. The resolution was vain. I set a bold face to it, but my powers were inadequate to the task. My adherent, with all the suavity imaginable, was sure to carry his point. I sometimes fumed and sometimes shed tears at being obliged to yield to proposals against which I had at first felt every reasoning power of my soul rise in opposition. But for all that he never faded in carrying conviction along with him in effect. For he either forced me to acquiesce in his measures and assent to the truth of his positions, or he put me so completely down that I had not a word left to advance against them. After weeks, and I may say months of intimacy, I observed, somewhat to my amazement, that we had never once prayed together. And more than that, that he had constantly led my attentions away from that duty, causing me to neglect it wholly. I thought this a bad mark of a man seemingly so much set on inculcating certain important points of religion, and resolved next day to put him to the test, and request him to perform that sacred duty in name of us both. He objected boldly, saying there were very few people indeed with whom he could join in prayer, and he made a point of never doing it, as he was sure they were to ask many things of which he disapproved, and that, if he were to officiate himself, he was as certain to allude to many things that came not within the range of their faith. He disapproved of prayer altogether in the manner it was generally gone about, he said. Man made it merely a selfish concern, and was constantly employed asking, asking for everything. Whereas it became all God's creatures to be content with their lot, and only to kneel before him in order to thank him for such benefits as he saw meet to bestow. In short, he argued with such energy that before we parted, I acquiesced, as usual, in his position, and never mentioned prayer to him any more. Having been so frequently seen in his company, several people happened to mention the circumstance to my mother and reverend father but at the same time had all described him differently. At length, they began to examine me with respect to the company I kept, as I absented myself from home day after day. I told them I kept company only with one young gentleman, whose whole manner of thinking on religious subjects I found so congenial with my own that I could not live out of his society. My mother began to lay down some of her old hackneyed rules of faith, 
but I turned from hearing her with disgust. For after the energy of my new friend's reasoning, hers appeared so tame I could not endure it. And I confess with shame that my reverend preceptor's religious dissertations began, about this time, to lose their relish very much, and by degrees became exceedingly tiresome to my ear. They were so inferior in strength and sublimity to the most common observations of my young friend that in drawing a comparison the former appeared as nothing. He, however, examined me about many things related to my companion, in all of which I satisfied him, save in one. I could neither tell him who my friend was, what was his name, nor of whom he was descended. And I wondered at myself how I had never once adverted to such a thing for all the time we had been intimate. I inquired the next day what his name was, as I said I was often at a loss for it when talking with him. He replied that there was no occasion for any one friend ever naming another when their society was held in private, as ours was. For his part, he had never once named me since we first met, and never intended to do so, unless by my own request. But if you cannot converse without naming me, you may call me Gill for the present, added he, and if I think proper to take another name at any future period, it shall be with your approbation. Gill, said I, have you no name but Gill? Or which of your names is it, your Christian or surname? Oh, you must have a surname too, must you? replied he. Very well, you may call me Gil Martin. It is not my Christian name, but it is a name which may serve your turn. This is very strange, said I. Are you ashamed of your parents that you refuse to give your real name? I have no parents save one, whom I do not acknowledge, said he proudly. Therefore, pray drop that subject, for it is a disagreeable one. I am a being of a very peculiar temper, for, though I have servants and subjects more than I can number, yet to gratify a certain whim, I have left them and retired to this city, and for all the society it contains. You see, I have attached myself only to you. This is a secret, and I tell you only in friendship. Therefore pray let it remain one, and say not another word about the matter. I assented, and said no more concerning it. For it instantly struck me that this was no other than the Tsar Peter of Russia, having heard that he had been traveling through Europe in disguise and I cannot say that I had not thenceforward great and mighty hopes of high preferment as a defender and avenger of the oppressed Christian church, 
under the influence of this great potentate. He had hinted as much already as that it was more honorable and of more avail to put down the wicked with the sword than try to reform them. And I thought myself quite justified in supposing that he intended me for some great employment, that he had thus selected me for his companion out of all the rest in Scotland, and even pretended to learn the great truths of religion from my mouth. From that time I felt disposed to yield to such a great prince's suggestions without hesitation. Nothing ever astonished me so much as the uncommon powers with which he seemed invested. In our walk one day, we met with a Mr. Blanchard, who was reckoned a worthy, pious divine, but quite of the moral caste, who joined us, and we three walked on, and rested together in the fields. My companion did not seem to like him, but nevertheless, regarded him frequently with deep attention, and there were several times, while he seemed contemplating him and trying to find out his thoughts, that his face became so like Mr. Blanchard's that it was impossible to have distinguished the one from the other. The antipathy between the two was mutual and discovered itself quite palpably in a short time. When my companion, the prince, was gone, Mr. Blanchard asked me anent him, and I told him that he was a stranger in the city, but a very uncommon and great personage. Mr. Blanchard's answer to me was as follows. I never saw anybody I disliked so much in my life, Mr. Robert, and if it be true that he is a stranger here, which I doubt, Believe me, he has come for no good. Do you not perceive what mighty powers of mind he is possessed of? said I. And also how clear and unhesitating he is on some of the most interesting points of divinity. It is for his great mental faculties that I dread him, said he. It is uncalculable what evil such a person as he may do if so disposed. There is a sublimity in his ideas, with which there is to me a mixture of terror, and when he talks of religion, he does it as one that rather dreads its truths than reverences them. He indeed pretends great strictness of orthodoxy regarding some of the points of doctrine embraced by the Reformed Church. But you do not seem to perceive that both you and he are carrying these points to a dangerous extremity. Religion is a sublime and glorious thing. The bonds of society on earth and the connector of humanity with the divine nature. But there is nothing so dangerous to man as the resting of any of its principles or forcing them beyond their due bounds. This is of all others the readiest way to destruction. Neither is there anything so easily done. There is not an error into which a man can fall which he may not press scripture into his service 
as proof of the probity of, and though your boasted theologian shunned the full discussion of the subject before me, while you pressed it, I can easily see that both you and he are carrying your ideas of absolute predestination and its concomitant appendages to an extent that overthrows all religion and revelation together, or at least jumbles them into a chaos out of which human capacity can never select what is good. Believe me, Mr. Robert, the less you associate with that illustrious stranger, the better, for it appears to me that your creed and his carries damnation on the very front of it. I was rather stunned at this, but pretended to smile with disdain, and said it did not become youth to control age. And as I knew our principles differed fundamentally, it behooved us to drop the subject. He, however, would not drop it, but took both my principles and me fearfully to task. For Blanchard was an eloquent and powerful-minded old man, and before we parted, I believe I promised to drop my new acquaintance, and was all but resolved to do it. As well might I have laid my account with shunning the light of day. He was constant to me as my shadow, and by degrees he acquired such an ascendancy over me that I never was happy out of his company, nor greatly so in it. When I repeated to him all that Mr. Blanchard had said, his countenance kindled with indignation and rage, and then by degrees his eyes sunk inward, his brow lowered, so that I was awed and withdrew my eyes from looking at him. A while afterwards, as I was addressing him, I chanced to look him again in the face, and the sight of him made me start violently. He had made himself so like Mr. Blanchard that I actually believed I had been addressing that gentleman, and that I had done so in some absence of mind that I could not account for. Instead of being amused at the quandary I was in, he seemed offended. Indeed, he never was truly amused with anything. And he then asked me sullenly, if I conceived such personages as he to have no other endowments than common mortals. I said, I never conceived that princes or potentates had any greater share of endowments than other men and frequently not so much. He shook his head, and bade me think over the subject again, and there was an end of it. I certainly felt every day the more disposed to knowledge such a superiority in him, and from all that I could gather, I had now no doubt that he was Peter of Russia. Everything combined to warrant the supposition and, of course, I resolved to act in conformity with the discovery I had made. For several days, the subject of Mr. Blanchard's doubts and doctrines formed the theme of our discourse. 
my friend deprecated them most devoutly, and then again he would deplore them, and lament the great evil that such a man might do among the human race. I joined with him in allowing the evil in its fullest latitude. And at length, after he thought he had fully prepared my nature for such a trial of its powers and abilities, he proposed calmly that we too should make away with Mr. Blanchard. I was so shocked that my bosom became as it were a void and the beatings of my heart sounded loud and hollow in it. My breath cut, and my tongue and palate became dry and speechless. He mocked at my cowardice, and began a reasoning on the matter with such powerful eloquence that, before we parted, I felt fully convinced that it was my bounden duty to slay Mr. Blanchard. But my will was far, very far from consenting to the deed. I spent the following night without sleep, or nearly so, and the next morning, by the time the sun arose, I was again abroad, and in the company of my illustrious friend. The same subject was resumed, and again he reasoned to the following purport that supposing me placed at the head of any army of Christian soldiers, all bent on putting down the enemies of the church, would I have any hesitation in destroying and rooting out these enemies? None, surely. Well then, when I saw and was convinced that here was an individual who was doing more detriment to the church of Christ on earth than tens of thousands of such warriors were capable of doing, was it not my duty to cut him off and save the elect? He, who would be a champion in the cause of Christ and his church, my brave young friend, added he, must begin early, and no man can calculate to what an illustrious eminence small beginnings may lead. If the man Blanchard is worthy, he is only changing his situation for a better one. And if unworthy, it is better that one fall than that a thousand souls perish. Let us be up and doing in our vocations. For me, my resolution is taken. I have but one great aim in this world, and I never for a moment lose sight of it. I was obliged to admit the force of his reasoning. For though I cannot from memory repeat his words, his eloquence was of that overpowering nature that the subtility of other men sunk before it. And there is also little doubt that the assurance I had that these words were spoken by a great potentate who could raise me to the highest eminence, provided that I entered into his extensive and decisive measures, assisted mightily in dispelling my youthful scruples and qualms of conscience. And I thought moreover that, having such a powerful back friend to support me, I hardly needed to be afraid of the consequences. I consented. 
but begged a little time to think of it. He said the less one thought of a duty, the better. And we parted. End of section 15